Greetings, Fright Fiends. I'm back with a new real podcast this time, not just me and JV waxing poetic. Uh, this time we're joined by Miss Amelia Kincaid, whom you might know as Angela from Night of the Demons. We'll talk a little about that, but she also has some really amazing stories, like how she helped invent the character of Blanche Frickin' Devereaux, and she teaches people how to communicate with animals, and she has some really solid evidence to to back up how this works and how you can learn to do it yourself so thanks for checking it out love you guys and enjoy the show yay howdy homies welcome to geek talk and i'm here today with my guest host mr joe bob briggs hey you you've uh, roped me into another one <laughs> <laughs> and our very special guest mr amelia kincaid thank you so much for being here you're so welcome. So you got roped in for me. No, I, I always say that at the beginning. Yeah, but then it's my whip, my dear. No, I definitely wanted to do this, <laughs> um, especially because you're my fellow Texan. Uh, you're a native Texan, isn't that right? I am. I was originally boy, born in uh, the Yahoo State of Texas, and I am here right now having a good Yahoo with you from Dallas. So I was born in Fort Worth and I spent the first 10 years of my life in Denton, Texas. Oh, okay. So you, you betrayed your native Fort Worth and moved to Dallas. No, I betrayed native Fort Worth and moved to Los Angeles. <laughs> okay. You can't talk to me. You know, cause of COVID, but I've, I've lectured and taught in 27 countries in the last 19 years. Wow. A lot of those countries every single year. And some of those countries all over the country. So I've been living out of a suitcase for the last 20 years. Wow. And yeah. COVID, COVID gave me a, a nice long winter nap. <laughs> well, let's talk about, um, that's, let's talk about how you go to, from, um, well, first of all, talk about how you went from uh, uh, Texas schoolgirl to uh, hot Hollywood dancer. Um, you were in like some of the biggest um, rock videos of the of the eighties uh, back when back when videos were really really expensive and highly produced and a big deal. So, uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I am the niece of Rue McClanahan, who played Blanche. On oh, the no way! <laughs> and one of one of the very naughty stories, and I talked about this in my latest book, which is called Whispers from the Wild. I I talked about my naughty aunt Rue in the Tiger chapter. Well, I will but check that out. <laughs> I take full responsibility for for creating the character of Blanche. Well, wow. <laughs> now once Rue sobered up, she forgot that I that her nineteen year old niece actually created that character, sitting on her kitchen floor, drinking cheap champagne with my favorite aunt. <laughs> um, my aunt Rue set a precedent because she actually she and my mother. My mother has double doctorates in radiation biology and molecular chemistry. She graduated summa cum laude from TWU. So both girls were extraordinary. 
you know, extraordinary two little girls growing up in Ardmore, Oklahoma. And, you know, by the grace of God, they had my grandmother, who was a kind of a stage marm for Rue, because who would who would let their daughter go to New York City and try to make it on Broadway, which she did. And Norman Lear saw her on Broadway and had such a crush on her and put her on all all um all in the family. And if you remember that episode, and it is just timeless, it's called The Swingers, I think. <laughs> and Edith answers an ad in the paper for a lonely couple. And there a man comes in and tries to seduce her. And my crazy Aunt Rue seduces Archie. And it's just one of the funniest things you've ever seen. So she went from that to multiple, multiple successes, it, one of which was, it was all in the family. And then it was, it was Maud, if you remember that show. And then it was Golden Girls. So I already had this template that most children don't have. There was this magic window that was showing me that anything is possible. And I, I teach this, and I talk about it now with all my horror movie fans and all my animal communication students. So I, 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 I studied classical dance. I was trained as a, a ballerina and a modern dancer. And my mother... Earth, is that where you did that? Following in those footsteps, my mother sent me to Interlochen Arts Academy in Michigan, which is, I think, the basis for the shows like Fame. It was a a performing arts high school, and we danced all day long into the night, six days a week, and also had very competitive academics, which is where I started writing and discovering that I had such a great passion for it. So, so did, you, did you move to Michigan just to go to that special high school? I did. I great. did. I graduated from Interlochen and then went to a few different colleges, um, OU in Oklahoma, OCU in Oklahoma, um, University of New Orleans for a summer, Gus Giordano's Jazz Company on scholarship for a summer in Chicago. And I went to Los Angeles to go stay with my favorite aunt. And at that time, all I wanted to be was a dancer. I, I, I didn't want to do anything else. So all these colleges, you were on a dance scholarship or you were dancing while you were there? Yeah. And it yeah. was it was very, very serious. When I got to Hollywood in the 80s, we were coming from ballet companies, you know, or modern companies. And I made a string of those crazy breakdance movies. Like oh, fast yeah. No, not those. crazy. Which one? <laughs> Breaking uh, break two is electric boogaloo, ah, right? My dance yeah. teacher's in the <laughs> I'm wondering what Foxy Nurse says. So I got to as a Hollywood, and I, I got the lead in a rock video that happened to be for my favorite band. And when I went to the audition, I didn't know what band it was. And I'd been dancing in the mirror to Stray Cat Strut for a year. I mean, this was the beginning of MTV. 
And uh-huh. it was such an exciting time to come to Hollywood and to be a dancer. So not knowing what band it was, I took a taxi in the rain to an audition. Back then, there was a little paper called Dramalogue, and it listed the dance auditions. And there were over 100 girls there, and they wanted one. Wow. Yeah. Intimidating. (laughs) Yeah. They narrowed it down to five, and I had a blonde crew cut at the time. So I looked a lot like the boys in the band. And then I got the call that I got the job and it was the lead in the Stray Cat video, Sexy and 17. Yeah, that's a famous video. Yeah. Well, it got a lot of press. I mean, I was incredibly blessed and lucky in so many ways. Back in the day, and we're talking 1983, and I got put on the cover of Life magazine as one of the faces of 83. And wow. Phil Donahue did a show on it. All the talk shows picked it up because 17 was underage. Oh, right. And so and they it, made a big deal out of that? It was it controversial was because of that? Very risque. It was very taboo. And my Aunt Rue said, Mimi, you're going to be an actress. <laughs> And I, but I, I don't want to. I don't want to be an actress, Rue. I just wanted to be a dancer. So that that story was. I'll tell you the the naughty Golden Girls story. She came home, and she swears that this never happened, but it did. <laughs> she came home with the script for the Golden Girls. She had just gotten the job, and she was crying. And she said, Mimi, they want to make me a dumb blonde. And that Betty White is already the dumb blonde. And it, just, <laughs> it just doesn't work this way. And she was so upset about it. And, of course, Betty White was at that point uh, brilliant. She She's brilliant being the dingbat. And I said, Rue, give me the damn script. And I'm sitting there on the floor in the middle of the night. And I started reading the script, and I said, Rue, I want you to read these lines like your panties are on fire. They're on fire. They're on fire. So she started taking these lines that aren't funny. Like, is that the postman at the door? I'll get it. <laughs> is that the paper boy? Oh my God! I'll go see if the papers here. And then everything that wasn't funny became funny. That's amazing advice. It's like an iconic <laughs> character because of that. <laughs> well, she took it to the she she took the script and did it that way. And she said the cameraman actually dropped the camera. He was laughing so hard the director <laughs> doubled over laughing. So I think that you know we had this thing already. I was nineteen, and we already had this kind of haughty harlot, and it, it's a kind of comedy, really, you know, to play this character. So when the Night of the Demons audition came around, it it was easy for me. It was it was easy for me to be this rebellious, outrageous, wannabe punk rocker because that's just who I was. I was playing myself, really. Yeah, well, Night of the Demons. That's you're you're the, it's your party. Everyone's going to your party, right? 
Well, yeah. And at the time, I certainly didn't have any idea. I mean, none of us did. We didn't have any idea that anyone would see this movie a month after it came out. We thought it would be swept under the rug and disappear forever. Certainly not getting a red carpet at the the man's Chinese theater in Hollywood. I oh mean, my God. that's awesome. Is that, is that because of the of the low pay or the terrible working conditions, or what? What made you have so little faith in the movie? Well, it was beneath low budget. It was what was called affirmative action, and we were all working for peanuts and for some strange reason and that might be part of it every single player every single member from the the cinematographer to the director to the set designer god knows the the special effects steven steve johnson had just won an oscar for ghostbusters so I really wanted to work with him knowing that he was the best in the business i i stupidly thought it would be fun and the effects were beyond grueling. And had I not been a dancer, a dancer that would take off my point shoes and pour the blood out in the middle of a, a nutcracker rehearsal and, and put them back on and finish the rehearsal, that's just what we did. Wow. We had a kind of endurance uh, for pain and a lot of patience for uncomfortable situations or I never could have lived through the effects, but all the actors did. And every single member, everybody involved in those movies, we were, we were just going for it. We were not holding anything back at all. And I think maybe because we thought no one would ever see the movie. So we all went, well, let's just go crazy. Let's just yeah. do the best we ever could possibly do. We're having a blast, and we gave it our all. We're, it's interesting you should mention Steve Johnson because, you know, how, how they say some movies are director's movies and some movies are writer's movies, and this was, was almost a special effects guy's movie. Um, his his uh, special effects were so – his makeup effects were so good, and they were so nuanced, and they – changed throughout the, the course of the movie um, that they sort of held your uh, held your attention throughout and um, I know that I know that must not have been fun but surely your Angela dance was uh, was your character your character was Angela right that's right yeah. so your Angela dance that must have been fun right it was incredibly fun I I took the job with the mandate that I would be allowed to choreograph the film and do whatever I wanted in the dance. And I had gotten to Hollywood just after Flashdance. And that was actually a dance double. Maureen Jahan did a brilliant job in that movie. So I had, uh, I think I had already done the, the Motown review. So I was a backup dancer for Smokey Robinson, Before Tops, Mary Wells, um, Ray Charles, I sat on his piano bench and sang in his ear. And That's I've said, great. It's the only time in his life he probably wished he was deaf instead of blind. <laughs> <laughs> so you were going out for every dance audition in Hollywood at the time, I guess, right? And I, I was a backup dancer for Cher and 
Donna Summer. I went on tour with Donna Summer. So I I had done all of these dance jobs and dance movies, but they really limit how much you can do and what ends up on the screen. They're they're going to take the dancers that are working literally all night and cut out the dance numbers or or shave them down to almost nothing. And by the time I got the the first movie, the first Night of the Demons, because I started in three of them, I just wanted to be able to perform in the way that I was trained as a modern dancer. And did Kevin Tenney know how lucky he was to get the top Hollywood dancer in his movie? Well, Kevin Tenney isn't the one who wanted me. It was the writer. It was Joe Augustin who had seen the Stray Cat video. And that's one of the reasons I got the job. He wanted a dancer in the role. My acting wasn't as strong as a lot of other actresses in Hollywood. But what's interesting is that so many people feel that the dance made the film. Well, it's certainly a big turning point in the film, uh, you know, where you, you know, it really, it really hooks you and, and um, it, and it looks, um, it just looks fabulous. So um, that, so if it was Joe that wanted you, Kevin certainly did a good job of filming you too. Don't you think? Yeah, he did. He certainly did. he, he had a handheld, and uh, it, our cinematographer was just a genius. And they chased me around. I he he let me just go for it and do whatever I wanted, and they just followed me. And as you say, it was pretty bold at the time to 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 go that that long on a on a dance sequence in in any movie, uh, much less a horror movie. So so uh, it's I think that's one reason that it's an iconic moment. Uh, in horror, it was just something that wasn't done at the time. Wow. Yeah, it wasn't. And I think to this day, our makeup set the precedent for a lot of the other types of things like The Walking Dead and all the movies that have zombies and monsters, even orcs. But the first time I saw The Lord of the Rings, I went, wait a minute, that looks like us. That looks like that's the night of the demons. Because how yeah, many ways can you do possession makeup? And how many ways can you do a, a dance where it's interesting that you say that, Jobo, because what you're making me realize is that your body needs a certain amount of time in order for your adrenaline to kick in and your heart rate to start to build. And you need to really be invested in the characters. You've got to care about them. And now when you watch Night of the Demons, everything seems sort of slow. Right. Well, I, but the or, thing is, your dance, your dance number, the amazing thing that Kevin Tenney was able to, to shoot that, um, Hollywood did not shoot complete dance numbers after about 1946. And so, and so all the guys who were known for shooting dance sequences were dead or retired. So it's, so it was a great job that Kevin was able to do a whole dance sequence, um, uh, on film like that, that that's, that's so good. And so, so, um, so appropriate for the movie, uh, in an emotional way. So 
for a lot of reasons, it was just um, a, a great moment in horror as well as a great moment in um, in in movies. Wow! Yeah, thank you. And then Brian Trenchard Smith directed part two, and he let me not only dance on a table, which was reminiscent of a, it was an homage to Hair, the movie Hair, where right. the the hippie jumps on the table of the garden party and right. starts kicking everything off and goes crazy. And I said, okay, that's what I'm going to do in part two. And I even, I picked up the punch bowl and poured it down my dress. And he also, he followed my lead with the dancing and Brian Trenchard Smith is just a wonderful director and a, a kind and elegant and wonderful man. That, and that's great. part three, Jimmy Kaufman, let me do it again. So they all, they all let me do whatever I wanted to do in the day. I know. You were not, doing something right. Not that many people come back for the third time in a horror franchise. But let me ask you, let me ask you about one other iconic moment. And that's when you 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 turn to camera and your fingers are on fire. Yeah, yeah. I had all of six seconds, Joe Bob. I had six seconds. Because they put a flammable gel on my fingers and I turn around, I li- they light my fingers and I turn around and I say into the camera, well, I was just warming my hands over the fire and they're torn. <laughs> you know something, this is the first indication that something is seriously wrong here. And I had six seconds before I had to take, I, I doused my fingers in this huge bucket of ice so they they told you it was six seconds before your fingers burned off. Is that what it was? <laughs> yeah, I had exactly six seconds before the fire got to my skin. How long does it say the, take to say the line? <laughs> I timed it very carefully, so that also was a kind of choreography. Wow! Well, it's a great it's a great image the way it came out. Um, You'd never know you're that stressed about it. <laughs> Well, I wasn't stressed about it. So, it, well, I would be six seconds. It's like, hurry up and say it, man. <laughs> yeah, because it doesn't seem like you're rushing on exactly. the line. Exactly. You know, and let me let me mention one other moment that everyone always <laughs> notices in the uh, in the uh, in the film, and that's when you and Linnea Quigley have a kiss, um, and it's a it's a hot kiss. Don't be a perv. <laughs> that, that also was kind of a, a big deal back then we were doing so many things that were taboo and Linnea went through the most grueling makeup she did it too and and so did Hal Havens I mean we all had really gruesome torturous makeup to get on and uh, Linnea and I do so many conventions together now and it's amazing that we're closer now than we were then. Of course, we're not making out anymore, but you know, <laughs> uh, the night is young. <laughs> if I'd known it was going to make that big of a splash, I, I would have done it more often. Okay. Now, Amelia, do, do people call you Amelia or Mimi? They call me Amelia. My Aunt Rue yeah. used to call me Mimi. It was my name when I was dancing. Okay. Well, um, after, after your acting 
at, at some point you made a switch of careers and became one of the leading um I, i'm not sure exactly what to call you but one of one of the leading animal um animal rights uh activists in the world and one of the leading animal uh communicators in the world sure, um, yeah. and so can you talk about how that happened and 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 when that transition occurred well it was also about the the time of night of the demons and shortly after that I I got this incredibly noisy cantankerous cat from the shelter in North Hollywood. And I brought this cat home who would go off like a car alarm every time I left the apartment building. So I snuck him in. I wasn't supposed to have a cat. And he got me kicked out of one apartment building and was about to get me kicked out of another apartment building. And... Every time I left, he would go, Mom! Well, it was an M on the end. I mean, one time I was I was driving up to the apartment building a block and a half away. I rolled down the window and I could hear him. Oh, my God. <laughs> so there was this woman who was going to all of the, the veterinarian offices all throughout America, driving around. Her name was Beatrice Lidecker. And she had gone on the Johnny Carson show and read Ed McMahon's cat live and made Ed McMahon cry. It's how fearless Beatrice Lidecker was. So I took my cat to see this woman who had this magical reputation for being able to talk to animals. And when I took him into the vet's office where she was diagnosing all the problems that the vets couldn't solve, which was a job that I I later have taken on all over the world. She she told me things that, that were utterly impossible for her to know. She told me things that had been said to the cat the day before, that women would come into the room and say, oh, look at those three little stripes on his head. Isn't he handsome? And pet his orange and white stripes. Well, my husband, my, my boyfriend at the time, my boyfriend's secretary had come in earlier that week and pet the three little stripes on his head and said, look at those three little stripes on his head. Isn't he handsome? Mm-hmm. Went on to describe the inside of the condo, said his favorite place to sleep is the back of a peach-colored armchair that's covered in white flowers that overlooks a bay window, and across the street is a wooden fence, and behind that is a little white dog. Did you know he goes over there and makes that dog bark? (laughs) (gasps) Well, the accuracy was shocking. There was a little white dog across the street behind a wooden fence, and is how many people have a peach-colored couch with white flowers on it? That was his favorite place to sleep. I didn't know he went over there and made that dog bark. <laughs> well, she diagnosed his problem, which was that he was lonely, that he had been abandoned and, and he and was a feral kitty out in the middle of nowhere. This is Rodney from, from the first book, which is called Straight from the Horse's Mouth. And the only way he could he could get fed is if he screamed because the workmen would throw out food for the feral cats if they heard them in there. So I took her advice and got him a girlfriend. 
And at that time, the last thing on earth I wanted was another cat. And she said, one male cat can't be alone. He needs a girlfriend. And he's a, he is afraid of the dark. He used to get locked into the warehouses in Van Nuys, in a bad part of Van Nuys. Well, she didn't know I had gotten him from the Van Nuys Animal Shelter. So she she blew my mind. And she was teaching a workshop that was the seed of what I've been teaching now for almost 30 years. And I went into that workshop with him, with my cat, thinking, I know she can do it, and I'll be the last person on earth who can do it. And when the time came... And she talked us through a guided meditation. So it's a kind of prayer. What I'm teaching is that the God within you listens to the God within them. So when we're coming from this place inside of us, where we're resonating on a, a different vibratory level, where you're in tune with all of creation, you're in tune with the spirit within you, because the spirit within you is the same spirit within every dog, cat, parrot, ferret, cheetah, great white shark, eagle, owl, every every living being is a a frozen ball of light in, in a universe that can communicate with itself. So every living being can communicate with every other living being by listening to the feelings and learning how to not just send out thought, but to receive thought and to receive emotion and to receive sensation from other living beings. So that's actually something that can be taught and, and you were able to communicate. I assume you were able to then communicate with your cat, with your own cat. I was, and also the dog that was in the seminar in, in incredible detail, I burst into tears and, and cried my eyes out through the entire workshop and took notes and notes and notes of of pictures and sensations and words and information that I was picking up from the dog. And when the owner confirmed how much of it was true that this dog was living in a, they had just moved from a trailer home that had a big pine tree in the front and the dog was madly in love with the next door neighbor's dog through a chain link fence. She'd run and lick his face. And he was a big black lab mix. And then the mom got divorced and had to get the dog fixed. So the dog never had puppies, but now moved to a new place and takes care of all the neighborhood cats. Well, she confirmed every detail. And what I realized then wasn't just that this is a gift that I have. This is a gift that everyone has. We're all capable of developing our intuition so that we can remote view and not only communicate with an animal who's three feet away from us, who might be 3,000 miles away from us. And, and so you ended, up, you ended up doing that because I know you, 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 as you mentioned before, you go to Africa a lot and you, and you deal with um, animal issues all over the continent of Africa. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I, I wrote the first book with 50 case studies from animals. It was journaling in a notebook for 10 years. So my first book was basically my diary 
And Random House picked it up and got it all over the world. The first one's in about 37, 38 countries now. And I'm very, very proactive about my press. So I'll go to Paris or I'll go to Mexico City or Norway or England, Ireland, Scotland, Portugal, Poland, Brazil, and actively campaign to get published there. And what I've found, and it sounds so incredible, is both careers that I have are cult followings. Thousands of people all over the world not only believe in this, but will do anything to learn it. So when I'm in Africa, I lead safaris. This year, by the grace of God, we'll be able to get back in. Now, you are telling me about something you were doing in Africa in January. So I'm praying that the COVID issue is going to calm down enough that we can actually get into Africa. Well, I, I, w- tell me about your safaris, though. You, these are safaris where you go with other people who are um, able to communicate with animals and you, go to, and you go to where the big animals are and you communicate with them? Well, I take students who fly in from all over the world. And it's a very, very small group. I can only have eight because everyone's going to want to be on the same truck. So we go out in awe and gratitude and prayer and silence just to greet the animals and tell them how much we love them. And the animals come? Every year, the same. There will be five elephants waiting around my tent before my plane lands, even if I fly in early and don't know where I'm going yet. Oh, can, what happened to them in 2020? Oh, that's well, sad, my bet. <laughs> they're, uh, they're missing me, and I'm missing them very, very much. So this, this elephant family that has adopted me, and I've seen them every year. I would see the same animals every year for at least nine years. They'll come into the the hotel. So I take people to Mafui Lodge in Zambia, which is the only safari park in the world where the elephants walk through the lobby of the hotel. They come inside. <laughs> That's great. They, they walk through every November. And this is the same elephant family that waits for me. And I'm learning from them. And I take students, and every time we go, or fans, readers, anybody who has the right state of mind, who's, mm-hmm. who has the right open mind and open heart. Aww, I want to go. <laughs> I'd love for you to. The, the lions come to the truck and escort us. The, I've had leopard moms bring me newborn babies. And, and her husband. <laughs> uh, that's great. You know, what caught my attention first about your work in Africa is that you go into the schools and you teach the small children why it's important not to become poachers. Exactly. This is my use of my dance and my acting. I started my own nonprofit called Archangel, A-R-K-Angel, Amelia's Archangel Society, 
because I'd already been doing this. When people would call me from Africa, it was a tiger sanctuary. I, I volunteer at Tiger Canyon, which is trying to completely relocate the entire species of tigers to Africa in order to save them. And nobody wants it at tigers in their backyards. But I, I'm i a very big uh, advocate of having tigers safe wherever we can possibly put them. And I take people to the gorilla in Rwanda, the same thing there where I've had moms bring me newborn infants and, and hold them up to my face. I, what they're capable of when they're greeted with this kind of love is just shocking. So I started going to Africa because a woman called me. She wanted help with her great white sharks, which are incredibly misunderstood. And I've I've keynoted the penguin charity. I work with show horses all over the world. I work with the Lipizzaners in South Africa that go into parishes and work with crippled children. And all sorts of birds of prey, eagles, owls, hawks, uh, cobra even baby bats even, a cheetah sanctuary, a couple of different cheetah sanctuaries where I volunteer. But I I started going into the schools and we dance as lions, we draw lions, we make up plays about protecting and poaching the animals. And I'm trying to teach the children that their long-term financial security revolves around working on the safari parks where the animals are protected, not to cave into the poachers. And that's not easy to do. If a poacher is going to offer you half a million dollars to to poach a pangolin, which is a little anteater. I went into Zimbabwe a couple of years ago for the, uh, did a pangolin campaign. I've done elephant campaigns, lion campaigns, gorilla campaigns, tiger campaigns. starting early with the children and teaching them that gorillas have feelings and they love their families too. And they have a right to be peaceful and live in harmony on earth, just like these children. And it's just become my greatest passion. So I I lead the safari. And what's amazing is that so many people who come on my safaris want to stay and do the charity work. They're excited about working with the kids. I imagine. That's great. Let me ask you about one trip that you made. You were invited to Buckingham Palace to uh, to talk to the Queen's horses. I, I was. And boy, have you done your homework. <laughs> That's his way. <laughs> I, I worked with the military horses in Buckingham Palace that were about to to be in the Queen's Jubilee Parade. And it was an incredible honor. The military that I I was working with, the head of the military, who wasn't skeptical at all. And this particular horse told me that he he missed a little two-year-old blonde boy. Turned out to be this man's grandson that he would bring in with him. And the dogs are talking about cats that they love. And and the horse that I was working with, I, I had no idea it was the queen's favorite horse. I had no idea it was the lead horse. And when I started asking the horse what was going on, because he was 
depressed and they were worried that he had health problems. And see, now I, I work with Olympic show horses that jump for Portugal. We won the Longchamp Global Championship Tour in Rome and Vienna. So horses are responding to collaboration and compassion and love and sensitivity. So I'll go in and they'll say, well, does he know he can win the Olympics? And the horse will say, well, of course. He knows he can win the Olympics. You know, it's like you're talking to a football star. What's in it for me? You know, what do you want? I, I want a wife. She, the, the female horse that I'm in love with is with somebody else. I want her next to me. She wants to keep her children. She doesn't want them shipped off, you know, like eggs in a carton. They have thoughts and feelings and family groups and emotional scope and intellectual scope that is so beyond what human beings give them credit for. Did you, did, were you able to cheer up the queen's horse? Well, he told me that he was missing a young bay, a dark, dark brown horse that would stand on his right. I said, what happened to this horse? Because he said, I was just training this horse. Now, when I say he said, I feel feelings, I see pictures, I pick up words. So that part of my brain that houses conversational skills is probably a little bit different. Um, it's wired differently than most people's hemispheres. So there are two different hemispheres in the brain. One of them is the intuitive hemisphere where you receive information, which used to be thought of as being strictly creative. But most of the great artists will say that they they chipped away everything that wasn't David or Chopin or Bach heard the music and they simply wrote it down. So there's a part of the brain that's receiving information from the universe. There's another part of the brain where the analytical skills are housed that make sense of the information. For whatever reason, and I see it true of most of my students, we can receive information and hear it in words. So I said to this horse, what happened to the other one that you miss so much? He said, he was moved up north and he's running through green fields, but I was training him and we were really making progress and I got so attached to him and I'm so sorry that he's gone. And I said, well, how are you training him? He said, well, we've got a practice on Saturday and I, I'm the head of the parade. Well, come to find out they had a practice on Saturday for the Queen's Jubilee and they had moved this dark young horse up to Prince Charles hunting facility. But when I asked him, what was the other horse's name? I heard the name Bernard. And when I told the head of the military, he misses Bernard, this dark brown horse that used to stand right next to him that's moved up north to run in green fields and he doesn't know where he's gone and he doesn't know why. The man almost fainted. And he said the horse standing next to this one was named Bernard. And we alternate them from Buckingham Palace to Prince Charles Hunting Facility. So I got to go up there and meet Bernard and get the two horses reunited again in Buckingham Palace. That's great. Were they together for the Queen's Jubilee? I don't think he made it back in time for that. But okay. he, did, he did make it back 
So, so many of these animals, we know that they don't speak English or whatever language someone speaks. And it's up to us to learn the language that they speak. Well, that's that. great. Yeah, that's great. Well, this this has really been fascinating, Amelia. Do you, do you have anything that you're working on that you would like people to know about um, in for the immediate future? Uh, the website is either ameliakincaid.com. If they click on my schedule, I've got that Safari posted, so they can see what I'm hoping to be able to do in November. Oh, I would okay. like that. And do, and do you teach classes in uh, animal communication? I have an online school, and okay. that that website is languageofmiraclesinstitute.com. I teach workshops. I'm about to teach my first live workshop in Amarillo, Texas, the first weekend of June. And we're going to post that so that people can come if they want to take in person. Otherwise, I've got my webinars online and if they even if they want to go to ameliakincaid.com and hit contact, it'll come straight to me. And okay. then fortunately we're able to do conventions again. So we're lining up a bunch of different uh autograph signing weekends. Okay. Are you going to so it was there any particular reason your first uh, live workshop is in the panhandle? A lot of horses up there. Well, Texas is one of the only places that's really open. Mm-hmm. Right. Everyone will be safe. It's for Dove Creek Horse Rescue, so we're going to be in an arena. There'll be lots of space around us. I've taught there before, and it's just a beautiful place. That's great. I I, I grew up pars- partially in the Panhandle, so I'm very familiar with Amarillo and Lubbock. Um, thank you, uh, Amelia, for um, for doing this. Um, I hope to, uh, as you know, uh, you're invited to the um, drive-in jamboree this summer at the uh, um, Mahoning Drive-In in Pennsylvania. So um, I look forward to seeing you there. And uh, um, and, <laughs> and thank you for sharing. <laughs> thank you so much. You've been amazing. That's so interesting. Oh, thank you. I, I'm glad we're allowed to talk about that now. So oh, we the, the jamboree? The jamboree. We've got. Well, yeah, we're allowed to talk about it. We're just vaguely. not allowed to talk about the programming <laughs> for it. <laughs> okay, we're, you're just invited as our guest. <laughs> That's great. Well, the Houston Horror Con is in June. I don't know if you're planning to come to that, the end of June, but I can't wait to see you both in New England in July. That'll be great. I'm. I, we're looking forward to it. And I want to hear more about Ghana and the horror movie that you are working on in Africa. Well, I'm not working on them. I'm just a big fan of them, but it's, uh, it's not, it's not Ghana. It's, it's um, Uganda. Uganda. Uganda, They have a, they have a great, um, uh, um, in, 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 it's called Kampaliwood and, and it's a, it's a film studio and they make, um, they make genre films there. So yeah, that's one of my, one of my interests. So, Thanks a lot for being with us, Amelia. It's a pleasure. Maybe I'll meet you there, too. Yay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you both. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Okay. Lots of love. Bye. Back at you.
inside. 